You're listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. Uh, Go ahead and meet me in Luke chapter 19 uh, is where we are going to be this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 19. Um, So I was never a great football player. Um, In fact, I I only uh, really played uh, on the JV team. And all of our JV games started out with the same speech. Uh, Stay together. Run hard. Look for the seam. uh, keep, uh, Keep tight. Uh, and remember your teammates. Now, you might think that that, uh, that pep talk uh, was for uh, on the sideline for the opening drive. Uh, or you might think that that pep talk was uh, as we were about to score uh, the first touchdown. But that pep talk was actually uh, so that we wouldn't trip over one another as we ran through the banner uh, that the cheerleaders uh, had. Right? You, you've seen those videos, I'm sure, of uh, the football team running through the banner and them all tripping themselves. And, and you're probably thinking, uh, well, I bet that that team didn't win, Mary, win very many games. And you would be absolutely correct, right? Uh, We did not win a lot of games, but we had fun, uh, and we only fell a few times. Um, But the reason that's important is because uh, entrances matter, right? Uh, From the the five minutes that I had from coming down from the baptistry to walking in here, I started thinking, okay, what am I going to do about the wet pants, right? Uh, Do I own it? Do I ignore it, right? Uh, Does it even matter? And I thought, certainly not, because all of these people are spiritual, right? Uh, And you have all proven me wrong. (laughs) Uh, But entrances matter, right? Uh, It matters the way that uh, we run onto the field, right? It matters the way uh, that the candidate walks into the job interview. Uh, It matters the way that you walk into your girlfriend's parents' house the first time, right? Uh, It matters because entrances matter. Uh, And so this morning, we're going to look here at Luke 19, and we're going to look at the triumphal entry. We're going to look at the beginning of Holy Week. We're going to look at Jesus entering Jerusalem uh, for the last time. Uh, And so when Casey was doing the announcements earlier, he said, hey, we're celebrating Palm Sunday. Uh, This is the Sunday uh, that historically, uh, throughout the church calendar, we have set aside to recognize and to celebrate that Jesus has come. And so this morning, we're going to look here at Luke 19, and we're going to see that Palm Sunday teaches us an important truth. Palm Sunday teaches us this, that Jesus is an unexpected king who brings peace in an unexpected way. Jesus is an unexpected king who brings peace in an unexpected way. Well, look with me at Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 28, and we're going to read down to verse 40. Let me invite you to stand as we honor the, the reading of God's perfect and precious word. Here in Luke chapter 19, verse 28, the Spirit says to us this. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? 
And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is God's word. You can be seated. Uh, Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Uh, Father, thank you that Jesus has come. Uh, Thank you that Jesus has, has died in our place so that we could have life. And we can have life with you. And Father, I pray this morning that as we look at your word, God, that you would show us the kind of peace that Jesus the King brings. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage, this, this triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem, we, we see it really takes three moves. And so uh, the first is this. We see an unexpected entry. An unexpected entry. Everything about Jesus' ministry is remarkably consistent, yet at the same time, it seems to always be unexpected, right? Jesus is remarkably consistent in what he does. He's remarkably consistent in what he teaches. He's remarkably consistent in what he says. He's remarkably consistent in the way he acts, and yet, as we read through the Gospels, we're, we're constantly finding him doing things that, that maybe we don't always expect. Maybe they, uh, they come at us in a way that we don't see coming or in a way that we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't predict. And so this triumphal entry is the same way. So where we pick up here in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has just finished telling a parable. It's the parable of the ten minas. And we get this idea in the passage, the way that there's not even a transition statement. He finishes the parable, and then in verse 28, it says, And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He said these things, he finishes his teaching, and then he just walks. He goes because he has got to get to Jerusalem. Now, if we were to go back and we were to look at Luke chapter 9, and we were to look at verse 51 there, what we would read is Luke gives us kind of this narrator's perspective, and he says that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. That Jesus had determined, Jesus had decided that he was going to go, he was going to get to Jerusalem. Now, why does that matter? Why is that important? Because Jesus knew that it was in Jerusalem where he would be murdered. It was in Jerusalem where he would be crucified. And so in Luke 9, he says that he's got to set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem in fear. Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem trying to figure out another way. Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem kicking and screaming. No, Jesus goes to Jerusalem with purpose, with intention. We can think of it like this, that Jesus goes to the cross, not because he's forced, not because he's coerced. Jesus goes to the cross because that's where Jesus wants to go. And so here in Luke 19, we have the beginning of this scene, the beginning of this picture, the beginning of the last week of the life of Jesus. So he tells this parable and he he begins moving quickly to Jerusalem. And in verse 29, we read that when he he drew near to to Bethage and and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, 
He sent two of the disciples. Now, these disciples are unnamed. We don't know who they are. We don't know much about Bethphage other than what the the scriptures give us, but we know a little bit more about Bethany. If you remember back, if you were to flip over to the Gospel of John and look at John chapter 11, well, then you would see there in John chapter 11 that uh, Bethany is where Lazarus lived. And Bethany isn't just where Lazarus lived, but it's also where he died. And it's not just where he died, but it's also where Jesus rose him from the grave after four days. And so Bethany is not an unknown place. It's not a, it's not a place that, that Jesus hasn't been before. He's familiar with this uh, community. He's familiar with this village. And so he tells these two unnamed disciples to go into the village. Now, Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. And he tells them, go into the village, and in the village you'll find a colt. You'll find a, a young donkey that has never been ridden. Now, uh, some commentators, they want to argue back and forth. Did Jesus pre-arrange this colt? Did, did Jesus pre-arrange that this donkey would be there? Or did Jesus know the donkey was going to be there? And Jesus knew whose donkey it was. And, and Jesus knew exactly how to get this donkey. Was it a divine prediction or did Jesus plan it? Uh, well, I've got to say that Jesus planned it because Jesus is divine, right? Uh, that it's a divine prediction because Jesus said, hey, there's going to be a donkey there. And that donkey's going to belong to someone, and you're going to tell that person, the Lord has need of the donkey, the Lord has need of the colt, and the person's not going to argue with you. The person's not going to fight with you. The person's going to say, okay, take it, right? You can have it. Now, Jesus isn't asking for this colt because he's tired. He's not asking for this colt because he wants something to ride, and a colt sounds like it might be stylish or it might be fun. No, just like with everything else Jesus does, there's an intention behind it, right? There's a reason why Jesus wants the cult. There's really, there's two reasons. So first, he's identifying with the kings of Israel. So it was common practice, if we, you know your Old Testament, you read your Old Testament, it was common practice that when the kings of Israel were anointed as king, they would ride into the city on a donkey. So if you go to, to 1 Kings chapter 1 in verse 33, There's where Solomon is anointed as king. And Solomon doesn't come in on a a horse. He he rides in on a donkey because that was the habit, that was the custom of Israel. And so when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt, on the donkey, he's not riding in because that was all that was available. No, Jesus is making a statement. He's making a statement. He's telling the city He's telling all of those who are gathered there for Passover, he's telling everyone who understands that the king is here, right? That the king has come. And so he's, he's identifying with the kings of Israel, but then he's also contrasting himself with the kings of the world. He was common practice at the time that when a new king, when a conquering king would enter the city, when he would enter uh, the, the capital, that he would ride in on a war horse. He, he, he would ride in on his noble steed, and he, that riding in on the horse was a declaration that he had uh, taken the territory. He had taken the city. He had taken the kingdom. Now, what we see in Revelation 19 is that it, there's coming a day when Jesus is riding in on a horse, 
Right? There's coming a day when Jesus returns on a white horse and on his leg it says the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and that he's coming to rule and to reign. But Jesus rides in on the donkey here as the king to show that his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. See, we know that the Jews, they were, they were looking for a political king, right? They were looking for a political Messiah. Their hope was in a ruler. Their hope was in a warrior who would come and who would free them from the oppression of the Romans. They were looking in many ways for Moses, They were looking for a kind of Moses who wasn't going to lead them out of the land, but was going to retake the land that was rightfully theirs. And so Jesus coming in on this donkey, he's telling, he's preaching, he's communicating to the Jews that his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world because his enemy is not like the enemies that other kings fight. See, Jesus is the second Moses. Jesus does lead a greater exodus, but Jesus doesn't lead an oppression from a king or a ruler. Jesus leads an an exodus from sin, right? Jesus is the great deliverer who comes to deliver us from the domain of darkness. He comes to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness, from the power of the prince of the air, and deliver us to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is telling the Jews, he's telling everyone who's looking, look, I am the king, but I have not come to rule in the way that you expect. I have not come to rule in the way that you think. No, I've come to rule in a different way. See, the problem for the Jews, and I think the problem for us as well, is that they had, and we have oftentimes, we misdiagnose our problem. Right? We, we see our greatest problem as something that is inhibiting our happiness. And man, if I just had this, then I would be happy. If, if I just had that, then I would be pleased. The Jews thought that if they just got that political Messiah, they got that warrior king, then all of their problems would go away. But what Jesus is telling them and what Jesus is telling us is that their greatest problem and our greatest problem is not what is out there. Their greatest problem and our greatest problem is what's in here. Right? It's what dwells in here. The first enemy that needs to be defeated is not the, the, the enemy out there. The first enemy that needs to be defeated is our flesh. Right? It's our hearts. You'll hear people say, well, just follow your heart. And typically, I run away from those people. Right? Jeremiah 17 tells us that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. Jesus comes to change that. That's the promise of the new covenant. That's the the promise that is made over and over and over again in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel and in the minor prophets that one day that there is a king who is coming and that king who is coming, he's coming to change your heart of stone to a heart of flesh. See, that's what Jesus has done. That's the battle that Jesus has raged, which uh, I believe is a far greater battle than defeating a king. It's a far greater battle than winning a war. No, it's a battle for eternity, right? It's a battle for a soul. And so Jesus has come 
And he's come as the second Moses to lead a better exodus. But the better exodus is not an exodus from Rome. It's an exodus from us. Right? It's an exodus of the heart. And so as we look at this passage, we have this unexpected entry. But next we see this, this unexpected response. Everything about this scene, everything about this passage is unexpected. From the way Jesus enters the, the response of the people, even the way that Jesus ends this passage, everything about it is unexpected. And as we look here at the response of the people, it's almost like suddenly the light flips on. That suddenly the people get it. Look at verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus, talking about this, this cult. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest." So we've got this donkey, right? This colt that's never been ridden. It's never been broken, right? Now, I don't know a lot about how this works, but I know that, that if you're going to ride a horse, if you're going to ride a donkey, you can't just go find a random horse or find a random donkey and jump on it, right? You've got to make sure that that horse or that donkey has been broken. You've got to make sure that it's been trained to carry. It's been trained to have someone on its back. But you've got this colt, it's a young donkey, and that's important because what it means is that no one's ever ridden it. Right? This donkey, this mule, it's never been broken. And what happens? Jesus gets on it, and he rides effortlessly. It's almost like, it's almost like the donkey understands that there's something special about Jesus. That's important because we're going to see something else about creation here in just a minute. And so he, he rides on this donkey effortlessly. And then in verse 36, we see that the people roll out the red carpet. They, they take their cloaks, they, they, they take the, the jacket, they take the shirt off their back, and they lay it down. It's kind of a, a red carpet effect. It's kind of a way to, to pay homage and respect. And they're laying their cloaks down as Jesus is coming into the city. Now, I think to us, this scene would probably look pretty unimpressive. You've got Jesus on a young donkey, and he's got people around him, and they're laying their shirts down. They're, they're laying their cloaks down so that he can ride along. But something's being communicated here, right? That the king is entering his city, and this unexpected king, that he's coming in an unexpected way. This is really kind of a picture of the kingdom, right? The, 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 kingdom, the, the kingdom of God isn't about pomp and power and prestige. The kingdom of God is about the people of God laying it all down and worshiping the Son of God, right? The, the kingdom of God doesn't come the way that the Jews would expect. The kingdom of God, maybe it didn't even come the way we would expect, right? If, if I were planning the way that God's son was going to come, I, I wouldn't have planned it probably for him to be born of a virgin in a barn, 
I probably wouldn't have planned it so that he has nowhere to lay his head. I probably wouldn't have planned it so that he rides in on a donkey. Instead, I probably would have planned it with pomp and with circumstance and with power and with armies and with all of that. And in the coming of Jesus, we see that he doesn't need any of it, right? That he is no less the king. In fact, he's showing that his kingdom is even greater because he doesn't need the help of everyone else because he's powerful enough. Right? He is the king who can handle it all. He's the king who, who doesn't need to be served by armies. He's the king who doesn't need to be served by other people. He's the king who comes to serve his people. And so in verse 38, we, or verse 37, we see this large number, this multitude of people rejoicing over what God has done in Jesus. It's, it's almost as if the people, they couldn't contain it any longer. Right? They, they couldn't hold it in. Look at verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God. And I love this, with a loud voice. They weren't just talking about it. They weren't just saying, hey, hey, here comes Jesus. They weren't just content. No, it says the whole multitude, they were praising him with a loud voice. Let me ask you this. This morning, when we sang and we worshiped Jesus, did you praise with a loud voice for the mighty things that he has done? Would people understand that we believe that Jesus is great, that Jesus is mighty, and he has done a great thing by coming in and watching us worship? Because anyone who saw this scene, anyone who saw what was happening here, they instantly knew there was something special about this Jesus. They instantly knew that there was something that, that this Jesus had done that was unlike anything else. These people were praising with a loud voice. We used to sing this song whenever uh, I was growing up in church. And we, it had a line in it that said, like, I'll become even more undignified than this. Right? Now, I think that our God is a God of order. But I wonder if maybe looking at this scene, if people would have looked at this and thought, well, they seem a little undignified, <laughs> right? We get this picture in, in the Old Testament of David dancing before the Lord. Or we get this picture of all through the Bible of people who understand the great power and work of God in their hearts and in their lives that they can't contain it. And here it's like all of Jesus's ministry, all that he's done, it comes to a head and the people just can't hold it anymore. And so they begin worshiping, shouting, proclaiming with a loud voice all that he had done. And, and look at what they sing. Look at verse 38. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, these two sentences here in verse 38, they're allusions to earlier passages. So that, that first sentence, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's actually a direct quote from Psalm 118, 26. So a royal psalm, a, a, a quote for a king, right? There's a, a blessing for the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But then look at that second sentence, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, if you remember back to Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the angels come and they say, peace on earth, glory in the highest. Now, I don't think it's an accident 
that this is what the people are singing. But notice that it's changed, right? It's a little different than what the angels proclaimed. The angels proclaimed peace on earth and glory in the highest. But here, the people are singing peace in heaven and glory in the highest. See, somehow, in some way, they understand that Jesus has come to not just make peace on earth, but he's done something far, far greater, and that's to make peace in heaven. And so why would there need to be peace in heaven? Well, what the Bible says is that Jesus has made peace between us and God. And so the people, they're proclaiming, they're, they're singing, they're, they're shouting that, that this Jesus, this king who's come in this unexpected way, he, he didn't just come to bring peace on earth, right? He didn't come to just free the Jews from their oppressors. No, he came first and foremost to bring peace in heaven. He came, this unexpected king who came in an unexpected way, brings an unexpected peace, and that unexpected peace for the people. It's not peace with their oppressors. No, it's peace with God. Because they'd been separated from God. They understood that their, their sin had separated from them from God, that there was something that needed to be overcome, and that Jesus is the one, he's the only one who can do that. And so I wonder if we see this as Jesus' greatest gift. Do we see Jesus' greatest gift as peace in heaven? Or do we see Jesus' greatest gift as what he can do for me right now? See, I think we're tempted to want to treat Jesus as kind of our divine butler. That, hey, whenever I need him, I'll pray. Or maybe I'll pray every day, but my prayers are going to get serious when suddenly life is hard. Or when suddenly I have, have this happening at work or I have this happening at home or I have this happening in my neighborhood or, or this is happening in the world. See, we're tempted to view Jesus as this divine butler. But what we've got to understand is that Jesus isn't some kind of God in our pocket that we pull out when we need. He's the savior king of the world, right? Jesus, first and foremost, he primarily came to make peace between us and God. He came to defeat sin and to defeat darkness and to defeat death. It's because of what Jesus will do on the cross that we'll see later here in the Gospel of Luke. It's because of that that these people are worshiping him, they're praising him, and they, they don't really understand all of it, right? They, they have no idea what's coming, but they understand that somehow, in some way, this Jesus, he, he's going to make everything right. He's going to bring peace in heaven. And so because of that, we're going to give him glory. So we have this unexpected response, but finally we see the unexpected reaction. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these, being the disciples, were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, people rarely react to the, the news that Jesus is king, that Jesus is savior, that Jesus is Lord. They rarely react in ways that we would expect. So here in verse 39, we see once again, the Pharisees don't get it. They, they, they want to squelch the joy of the people, right? They, they've missed the entire point of Jesus coming. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples, tell them to quiet down, tell them to stop because they knew what this meant. 
They knew that if the people were singing this about Jesus, if the people were this excited about Jesus, if they were worshiping him in a loud voice, they were praising him with a loud voice because of all that he had done, then they understood that the people think that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they say, Jesus, teacher, you need to quiet down your people. You need to, to quiet down your disciples. So the Pharisees, they had two problems with Jesus. One, we've seen this over the last couple of weeks. He threatened their power, right? He, he threatened their influence. He, he threatened their income. But there's a second problem that they had with Jesus, and it's this. He didn't meet their expectations, it wasn't that Jesus didn't fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. Because we can go prophecy by prophecy in the Old Testament and we can see that Jesus fulfills them all. It wasn't that Jesus didn't fulfill the prophecy. It's that Jesus didn't meet their expectations. Jesus didn't do what they thought he should do. Jesus didn't, didn't act in the way that they thought he should act. They were looking for someone who thought like them, talked like them, looked like them, walked like them, acted like them. But instead they got this carpenter from Nazareth. And instead they got this Galilean. And instead they got this guy that, that doesn't look very royal. He doesn't look very regal. See, Jesus didn't meet their expectations. I think we've probably all had that experience of things not meeting our expectations. But in fact, I would say that rarely... Does reality live up to what we expect? We can take marriage, for example, right? I think anyone who's ever been married, who's been married for longer than five minutes, realizes that, that marriage isn't always, I mean, this is for y'all, my marriage, right? Uh, Anna met my expectations. Uh, right, we, we all know that, that marriage or, or any other relationship, it doesn't always meet our expectations. We could take it to other things, right, that, that this job, man, I finally get my dream job. Maybe for the first month or two months, it's great. And then after that, we realize, hey, it's a job, right? Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, get, this, I'm gonna get this car, I'm gonna get this new car, my dream car, and it's gonna be wonderful, and then it breaks down. I'm gonna get my boat, I'm gonna get my four-wheeler, I'm gonna get this, or I'm gonna get that, and we realize, hey, it, it, it doesn't last very long, right? I'm finally going to get my house, and it lets us down. See, I wonder if we are more like the Pharisees than we care to admit. I wonder if maybe we have expectations that we think Jesus doesn't meet. You might say, well, Ethan, I, I love Jesus. I, I worship Jesus. What, what do you mean? that I would have an expectation that he doesn't meet. But I wonder if you've ever thought or prayed or maybe deep down in your heart felt something like, God, why are you doing this? If you really loved me, this wouldn't happen. Life wasn't supposed to be this hard. Life wasn't supposed to be this difficult. My life wasn't supposed to look like this. My retirement wasn't supposed to look like this. My career, my family, they weren't supposed to be like this. They, they weren't supposed to look like this. God, if you really loved me, none of this would have happened. Jesus, if you really loved me, then, then you wouldn't have let this happen to me or to my loved one. I think we all probably have felt something along those lines at some point. 
But see, we've, we've got to understand this, and this is good news. That Jesus didn't come to meet our expectations. Jesus came to meet God's expectations. Right? Jesus came to live a perfect life, and even now, Jesus is loving us. He's loving you in the best way possible. See, even now, even in the midst of that pain, even in the midst of that difficulty, even in the midst of that problem, that God is working, he's using it. Every situation in your life is designed to remind you that Jesus is far greater than you could have imagined and Jesus is far greater than you could have expected. So even whenever life is hard, even whenever times are difficult, you walk through that so that Jesus can prove that he is who he says he is, right? You, you walk through that so that, that Jesus can show you, so that Jesus can remind you that even in the midst of the, the illness, even in the midst of the diagnosis, even in the midst of whatever that trial may be, Jesus is still good. You see, what if, what if we walk through those situations? What if we walk through those circumstances? What if we walk through those trials so that on the other side of it, we walk out with less of us and more of Jesus? Right? What if we walk out seeing Jesus a little more clearly? It's seeing Jesus as a little more beautiful, a little more powerful, a little more worthy. And see, there, there are seasons, there are trials that we will walk out of and we will walk out of with a limp, right? There are seasons, there are trials that we will walk out of and we're not going to walk out as good as new, but we're going to walk out of it. And sometimes it's not that we're going to walk out of it with a limp. Sometimes it's that Jesus is going to carry us. But through all of that, Jesus proves man, that he is still good and he is still worthy and he is still the king now what's interesting is all through the gospels jesus heals people and then he tells the people don't tell anyone right he, he heals he, he heals someone and then he says go and tell no one he, he heals someone he does some teaching and he says go go and don't tell anyone but here the pharisees finally tell him hey Rebuke these disciples. Tell them to stop talking about you as the Messiah. And what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you're right. It's not the right time. No, Jesus says, look, if they don't talk, then the stones will tell them, right? The, the stones will cry out. Now, there's, there's some question here about what stones is Jesus talking about? Is Jesus talking about these stones that were on the ground? Jerusalem was also known for these great sculptures, these great stones that were, that were all around the city. Is he, is he talking about those stones? Well, I think that he's talking about all the stones, right? That, that all of the stones will cry out. See, this is the point of all creation. All creation, you and I, but then everything that has been created, it was all designed, it all serves the purpose of pointing to God's glory. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's the point of creation. Now what Jesus is saying here is that his identity is so obvious that even the stones see it. Even the stones can tell who Jesus is. Remember the donkey, the colt that Jesus rode on? The colt recognized who Jesus was. It is, I was 
Thinking about that verse, that the stones will cry out. I said, it, it, I, I thought it, it brings a whole new meaning to that phrase, dumb as a rock, right? Because the rocks get it, right? The rocks get that Jesus is king, right? They get that he is worthy. And so the question is, do we see Jesus as clearly as the rocks see Jesus? See, Jesus might be an unexpected king who comes in an unexpected way and brings an unexpected peace. But what Jesus has done, he has done for all the world to see. He has done for all of us to know. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves today is this, is are we seeing Jesus correctly? Do you see Jesus as king? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? And this is a question that I'm asking to believers. This is a question that I'm asking to those who maybe you're like me, you've, you've trusted Christ. Does your life tell the story that Jesus is king or does your life tell the story that you are king? D does your life tell the story that Jesus is sovereign, Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is worthy? Or does your life tell the story that Jesus is worthy, but he's not worthy enough? D does your life tell the story that Jesus is worthy, but he's not as worthy as you? See, what this passage is doing is it's calling us to see Jesus clearly. It's calling us to see Jesus correctly and then respond in the right way. But to respond in a way that says, you know, Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. But then there's the other question. Are you, do you see Jesus as king? The other question is, do you see him as savior? So maybe you're on the other side of that coin that maybe you've yet to trust Jesus. Maybe you've yet to give your heart and your life to Jesus. Well, well what this passage is calling us to, what it's calling you today, is to see Jesus as savior. And to not just see him as Savior, but to trust him as Savior. To trust that he's the one, he's the only one, who can bring peace in heaven. See, you can't do it. You can't make peace in heaven. You can't try hard enough. You can't work hard enough. You, you, you can't come to church enough. You can't give enough. You can't pray enough. See, at the end of the day, if it's all about you, then everything you do is tainted by your sin. And that doesn't do anything to make your standing before God any better. But in the coming of Jesus the King, in the coming of the Messiah, what we have is we have the perfect Holy One of Israel, the perfect spotless, sinless son of God. He's come to earth. He's lived a perfect life. And he's died in our place so that we who are imperfect, we who are unrighteous can be made righteous. That we can be made like him. Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, that's what happened on the cross. Jesus, who had never tasted sin, became sin so that we could be made righteous, so that we could be made perfect, so that we could be made right with the Father, so that we could stand before God forgiven 
and loved and accepted. And so if you've never done that, if you've never trusted Jesus to be your Savior, well, then we want to invite you to do that today. We want to invite you to trust Him. We talked about seeing Jesus as King. Maybe, maybe you'd say, Ethan, I've trusted Jesus. Well, you know, the first step to trusting Jesus as King is exactly what Landon did this morning. Right? It's following him in baptism. And so, so maybe you'd say, Ethan, look, my next step, I, I need to be baptized. I, I need to follow Jesus in baptism. Well, hey, we would love to celebrate with you, right? Maybe you're saying, Ethan, I need to give my life to Jesus. We'd love to celebrate with you. You can text that number on the screen, 407-338-4024. There's someone on the other end of that line who's ready to talk with you about, hey, uh, you say, I need to trust Jesus. We want to help you. You say, I need to be baptized. We, we want to help you. You can walk out of this room. You can hang a right, go into our next steps room. And there's people in there ready and waiting to talk with you about what does it look like? How do you follow Jesus? How, how do you trust Jesus? What does it look like to follow him in baptism? You know, the, this good news that Jesus, this unexpected king, has, has come to bring an unexpected peace. It means something for all of us, Right? We talk about how Christmas changes everything. Well, the reason Christmas changes everything is because Easter is true and Easter changes everything, right? The resurrection changes everything. And so what this passage is doing is it's calling us to inspect our lives and to see, all right, where am I not trusting Jesus as King? Where am I not trusting Jesus as Lord? Where am I not trusting Jesus as Savior? And I'm going to give that to him, right? I'm going to turn that over to him. So here in just a minute, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And this is an opportunity for all of us. To pray and to ask, Lord, Lord, where are you not king in my heart? Where are you not king in my life? And God, I want to give it over to you. I want to turn that over to you. Because I promise you this, Jesus is a better king than you are. Right? Jesus is a better ruler of your heart than you. And the good news is that today he's inviting us to give our heart, to give our lives fully and wholly and totally to him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that Jesus is king and that he's brought peace. Father, I pray that that we wouldn't hold our hearts back, but God, that we would give them to you. God, I pray that we would live in light of the truth that Jesus is king. Father, I pray for, for those who, who have yet to, to acknowledge that, who have yet to, to bow their knee, who have yet to give their heart to the good king, the true king, the, the savior Jesus. God, I pray that today would be the day that they do that. And so, Father, I pray that you would work in hearts and you would work in lives in the way that only you can. And it's in the name of King Jesus that we pray. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.